In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. Sharon Reynolds is our guest today on Money Tales. Sharon is a successful serial entrepreneur. Her first entrepreneurial role model was her grandfather who had to hide money in the walls of his home to protect his earnings from the clan. Sharon had the same perseverance as she launched her first startup in high school as a seamstress and bespoke neighborhood designer. Today, she's in the process of raising $70 million in a Series A round for one of her latest ventures. Sharon is CEO of Devmar, a diverse group of businesses that all serve to better the lives of citizens where we live, work, and play. She began with Devmar products, and the idea was to develop and distribute environmentally friendly, innovative products that eradicate pathogens while creating healthy spaces and sustaining the environment. Sharon promotes parity and equity for women through her position on the board of directors and as co-chair of the advisory board of the Women Business Collaborative. Sharon has received many accolades over the years for her leadership in business and in her community. Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three key money tales topics Sharon brings to life. First, the benefits of being aligned and in partnership with your spouse. Second, the importance of mentorship. And third, the importance of creating generational wealth. Building off something else Sharon mentions, join Cami and me after the interview for a short discussion about long-term care insurance. Now, on to Sharon Reynolds. Welcome Money Tales listeners. This is Cami. Hi, Sandy. Hey, Cami. I wanted to share a story with you, Sandy, as I was thinking about Money Tales this morning. Last weekend, we did our first family ski trip for a few days in the local mountains up here in Tahoe, where we stayed with another family. And it was really special. It also happened to be the week that many other families were up there. So as we know, with supply and demand, it was really a big investment for us. Was that a surprise to you? It wasn't a surprise going in. So we, we knew this was going to be probably a big investment, but it was really important to us. We wanted our girls to have their first formal ski experience where they're in a class. And so we're really committed to it. But what we weren't committed to was whether my husband and I were going to ski. We're like, let's just make sure we get them out. <laughs> right? We were just more like, yeah, it's the girls. Why were you not thinking about skiing while they were in ski school? You know, it was just like we could do a lot of different things, but we hadn't skied together in a long time. We're in line. We go to check out how much is going to cost, and we wait in line, and we're at the checkout area. <laughs> and the lady presents a number that absolutely floored me to rent skis of two days, to have lift tickets two days. 
And I was shocked. And in that moment, I've got a very frugal nature. I'm thinking, this is nuts. I'm out. This is absolutely ridiculous. And she was adorable. This gal was like, I know this is why I work here. I couldn't afford to ski. So why I was thinking about money tales is we did decide to go skiing and make this big investment. And it really made me think that this frugal side, and it is such an expensive sport, but we as a family are very fortunate. We're both employed, we've saved money, and we could afford it. And when I think about my values, our values, I think about it's reprioritize experiences, not buying shiny objects. We value experiences, and especially as a family. Cammie, that's a great story. I'm glad you shared it. And I love that you got to values to help you make that decision and that you guys had a blast. And it sounds like it was a priceless decision that you made, that you had a really wonderful time. It was. Thanks, Andy. We got to spend it with friends we ran into on the mountain. It was really, really special. So thanks for letting me share that. What a great opportunity to segue to our guest today. Welcome Sharon Reynolds to the Money Tales podcast. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. This is going to be fun. It will be fun. We're excited to have you, Sharon. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Sharon, please provide a brief introduction with two to three pivotal moments in your life that really influenced you. Well, I think it really goes back to my childhood when my father was one of the first African-American firemen to integrate the headquarters of the fire department in Nashville. He stayed on the force for 35 years, but that was a pivotal moment for me because for the first eight years of my life, we grew up in the housing projects. Back then, they weren't as bad. They were clean and they were families there trying to make an honest living. But that pivotal moment when he got the job, we were able to move from the housing projects into our own home. And at that time, I knew, okay, so getting a good job is associated with a better life. So that was a pivotal moment. And I think another pivotal moment for me was when I learned the value of entrepreneurship through my paternal grandfather, who was self-employed. He had a body shop and auto dealership back in the late 50s, early 1960s. And I remember visiting my grandmother and my grandfather, and we would just have fun. And I noticed that he didn't actually leave the house to go to work. He went to the backyard where his shop was situated to go to work every day. So that showed me that he owned his own business and that, uh, gosh, back then I thought he must make a lot of money to be able to do that. And then, you know, I was a kid at the time and learn more about entrepreneurship as I was older. But those were, I think, two of the pivotal moments for me. Sharon, that's a great introduction. So you grew up in Nashville? Grew up in Nashville, five generations, and so proud of our city. And it's chock full of so many different types of opportunities for entrepreneurs and is gaining a huge recognition as the entrepreneurial capital of America. And it sounds like your family was very financially oriented, very hardworking entrepreneurs. Tell us, were there conversations about money happening within your family? Well, actually, on my maternal side, there was not as much conversations about money as there were 
on my paternal side of the family with my grandfather as a successful entrepreneur. But ironically, when he passed away, uh, I believe it was in the late 70s, we found lots of money hidden all over his home, inside the drywall structure of the home. How did you guys think to look inside the drywall structure of the home to find this money? Well, that's a story. It's a family story. But we were really shocked that he passed away at age 55. And his youngest son became so emotional that he just drew a fist through the wall. He was just that emotionally wrecked to lose his father. And when he did that, he discovered something behind the wall. <laughs> and it was money. Wow. And so that's how it started. And it actually set them off to start looking elsewhere throughout the house. So back then, as an African-American successful entrepreneur, you had to be concerned about several things, your family safety, your life, will your business get burned down by the Klan? All sorts of things were going on. You didn't trust the banking system. African-American men back then couldn't secure nice insurance policies to protect generational wealth for their families. So it was a lot going on back then. And so for Blacks, it was just different. And so that's how they discovered so many thousands of dollars hidden in the, in the walls of my grandparents' home. Oh my gosh. What did that do for the family? Well, I was very young then, and I just heard the conversations. It was a shock, but I think what it led to for me as I grew older and got married and had my own children is that one, you don't keep your money in the home where it can't work for you. And so we would have that conversation with our sons. But back then, it was just the best that a family could do when there was no trust. It taught me to build a trust and relationship with bankers. And part of my career was mortgage banking and real estate sales. I owned a mortgage company when I was 25 years old with a partner. And so it taught me to really try to learn more about money and finances along the way so that we could pass it on to our sons and for the generations that are coming behind them. We have a four and a half year old grandbaby girl. And so she's going to learn it all. She's already learning things about money right now as we have her little, we call it a piggy bank. But she says, no, it's not a piggy bank. It's a little bank, Gigi. So I said, okay, then it's a miniature bank. So those are all stories that we hear about in our family on both sides. One family was less apt to saving money, while my paternal side was more apt to saving money. Sharon, how did that form you as you were growing up? It sounds just from starting a business at age 25, that you definitely resonated with the entrepreneurial track of your family. Did you grow up thinking a lot about money as you were sort of getting into those adolescent years and moving into young adulthood? What I thought about was that I really wanted to live a lifestyle that was comfortable, one that I was able to help other family members and then help my community. I was a senior in high school and I didn't understand that I was an entrepreneur at the time. I had 30 customers and I was a seamstress. So my Aunt Gloria taught me how to sew when I was in the seventh grade. She encouraged my father to buy me my first Singer sewing machine. And I loved it. She taught me how to sew with perfection. I was always a fashionista, loved, loved clothes, but my family couldn't afford what I really wanted to buy. So my Aunt Gloria taught me how to make them. 
And so by the time I was a senior, I had 30 customers and I was making their clothes from the high school girls that I associated with and some of their parents, some of their mothers. So it was really interesting. I couldn't work outside the home during that time. So I was encouraged to just sew and earn money that way. And it was fun, which brought even today, I have a clothing line named after my granddaughter, Bryla J. Couture Clothiers. And it's fashion for women, but it's fashion for a purpose where part of the proceeds is donated to charity. Sharon, you are the ultimate entrepreneur. I'm the marketer. I want to know, how, how did you get customers back in high school? Well, it was really interesting. Each fall when school started, there's a favorite store called Casual Corner. And all the girls would go to that same store and then they would come in. Everybody had on the same thing. And (laughs) when I would start school with my wardrobe, it was totally different, totally unique. And the girls just couldn't believe that I made those clothes over the summer. And my Aunt Gloria, like I said earlier, she taught me perfection because she didn't want me to be embarrassed. Because, if you know, if someone makes their own clothes, what is it going to look like of the seam straight? It's going to look like they're homemade. And so she I remember her telling me before the school season started, she says, this is a seam ripper. And I need you to learn how to get real <laughs> comfortable with it, because if those seams aren't straight, honey, we are ripping them out. I was like, oh, my gosh, Aunt Gloria, I put all this work. She says, no, you're going to have to make sure that they look good. And so that's what really led to other girls coming to me saying, oh, Sharon, can you make me this? I've got to go to this event or I'm going to that event. And then the mothers would come up and say, honey, do you make larger sizes? And I'm like, sure. (laughs) So that's really how it started. I loved it. It was a passion of mine and I didn't mind doing it for someone else. And I really just really got a lot of enjoyment from seeing people happy with the end result. I think that was my first foray into entrepreneurship. And when I was 18, I was very interested in the mortgage banking business while I was in school. By the time I was 19, my husband and I owned our first home. And then we just moved from that point to make sure that real estate was part of our portfolio. Sharon, can you say more about that? As an African-American woman, and you look back on the history of this country, laws were not favorable to African-Americans buying homes. And as a young person, you and your husband were able to do this. I'm curious, where did the interest in in in-home ownership and mortgages in particular come from? Well, when I was younger, we did live in the housing projects for the first eight years of my life, I mentioned. And my father got his great job with the fire department. And then I saw what home ownership meant and the doors that would open, learn later that having a certain level of credit worthiness would get you into other opportunities that could continue to grow your wealth. And so by the time I was able to make that decision, I worked in the mortgage banking business. I had a mentor there. He was phenomenal. Had he not given me the opportunity at such a young age to enter the mortgage banking business, I wouldn't know as much as I learned and know today. So from that point in mortgage banking, it grew to me becoming the manager of a mortgage company. By the time I was 25, I owned a mortgage company with another partner. So I understood the finances at an early age, what happened to mortgages when they were sold in the secondary market, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Jenny Mae Pools, all of that. I'm like, wow, this is fantastic. And then we were bought out by a company in Charlotte, North Carolina called Biltmore Mortgage Company when I was 29 years old. It was the most money I'd ever seen. And so my husband and I took that money and started investing in real estate, flipping homes and some general contracting work that we were doing. 
So it really enhanced my knowledge. And so that was the journey in real estate that opened other doors for other business opportunities. Became a real estate broker. Loved that. Spent some time. I don't know if you remember the SNL crisis, savings and loan crisis. So I did a lot of work there with the uh, Resolution Trust Corporation. And for two years, analyzed portfolios all over the United States, came back, got my real estate license. And then we had the economic downturn of 2008. I could feel the rumblings in the market in 2007. So ahead of that, I launched a company called Devmar Products, which is named after my two sons, Devin and Marco. And it was a company that is slated to build a portfolio of specialty products that would eradicate pathogens. So Mm -hmm. I'm a germaphobe. I was going to ask, where did that idea come from? Well, my husband at that time and still does have a company. It's a facilities management company. And he was buying janitorial supplies. And it was called reinvention, pivoting. What was I going to do? The real estate market, it crashed. So I went to him one day. I said, I'm going to sell you your janitorial products that you're buying right now. And it was met with a little pushback because I really couldn't get the margins right for him because I couldn't buy large, large quantities. But we worked our differences out and he was my first customer. After that, we built a relationship with the Metro Nashville Airport Authority in Nashville. And we were able to secure a five-year contract. Shortly thereafter, we secured a national contract and the rest is history. So I partnered with the Morehouse School of Medicine's research team. We developed a product that eradicates norovirus and other types of pathogens. And we're working on the pandemic today with that particular technology as we've grown. So one company has led to another. We also have a company called Devmar Global Healthcare Solutions, and we partner with an outfit out of Portland, Oregon called NICU, and we provide a shelf-stable human donor breast milk for at-risk infants in NICUs across the United States. It's a labor of love. I had no idea that three and a half years later, my own grandbaby would be born prematurely and was nourishing on the NICU brand for her survival for the first six months of her life. Sharon, this is amazing, these stories and how they weave together a beautiful web. Would you talk a little more about your relationship with your husband? You sound like the dynamic duo. I'd love to hear how you are having money conversations together as you, whether it's at 29, you have this liquidity event. What did you talk about that led to then flipping properties? I absolutely love talking about my husband. (laughs) This year, we will celebrate our 44th wedding anniversary. Happy anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. We met at 18. We married at 19. He comes from a family of 10 children. I come from a family of seven children. And we both grew up with just very, very meager beginnings. And I remember when we were talking about getting married at such a young age, we were really ahead of our time. We were very mature. Well, he was a middle child. I'm the oldest child. But we talked about how much we were earning at the time and how education still played an important key in our lives. So we would keep that going and how frugal we would have to be with our money, which wasn't a hard thing to do because we weren't used to spending a lot of money anyway. So everything we earned at that time, we always vowed to save at least 20, 30 percent of it to put it aside for a rainy day 
We knew what rainy days felt like growing up in such a big family. So that wasn't hard to do. He was such a great guy, and we both loved working hard. He started working when he was nine years old. He had several customers where he was cutting grass and painting homes during the summer. And I was doing my thing, making clothes for my clients during the summer. So it just made sense. We both had that entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, He has a 35-year-old facilities management company today. And throughout our journey in real estate development and all the things that we've done together, we've always kept God first. And that's been the center, core center of our lives. When we had our first son, we were married seven years then had our second son, taught them the value of money, taught them the value of respect of their community. And of course, the respect for their parents and one another. We were never their friends. We were always their parents. And then I think when we established that relationship with them, that they would listen to us and not give us a lot of pushback as relate to giving them advice about monies. When they went to college, they were not allowed to open up a credit card account. That was going to be a big ding against them. And we told them, we said, you get to the campus and you like that shiny new credit card and you think it's fun. If we find out you've opened your credit card account, then you can pay for your own college. How's that? Those are some tough lessons. Yeah. (laughs) We never had any trouble and both graduated. We did get them going by the time they were both seniors in college to establish their credit worthiness. And then they were able to do some of the things that they wanted to do without us having to co-sign. So there's a little trick to doing that. And even to this day, they're in their 30s and they have excellent credit and they understand the value of that. So my husband and I, we sort of taught each other along the way because we were so young. We went into some real estate opportunities because of my background in real estate and mortgage banking. Did we trip a little bit sometimes by buying a property that maybe we paid a little bit too much for? Yes, we did. But we made up for it on the back end on some other properties. So we were always in sync. And I tell people about that. When you're a couple and you're married, and especially if you're entrepreneurs, you've got to let the left hand know what the right hand is doing all the time. We never kept separate accounts from each other. We always knew what we had. You hear mothers telling their daughters, honey, always keep a little side hustle money, a little side fund for yourself. Don't let your husband know everything that you've got. I didn't have that kind of relationship with my husband and neither did he have that kind of relationship with me. All hands were on the top of the table and we shared everything which made sense in our world as a married couple. And I love that you're so values-based, Sharon. It sounds like you and your husband were really clear from the beginning where your values are and you're making money decisions, kind of like Cammie and her husband up on the ski slopes that were consistent with those values, which are really important. Diving a little bit deeper, usually from my experience as a wealth manager, within a marriage, different spouses handle different aspects of the money. There's just a different division of how things get done. I'm curious because you and your husband are so aligned. How did you decide who was going to do what? Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. Early on in our relationship, we had a system and we didn't have very wealthy parents to help us along the way. We worked for everything that we achieved. And so debt came with that. So as we were working along the way, we would always pay off 
the smallest debt balance first because it gave us some wins. For instance, if we had a credit card that had a $200 balance back then, we'd pay that thing off. We'd go, wow. And then we would tackle the next highest balance and so on. We made those decisions together. I'm really detail-oriented. So back then we were writing checks. We would meet at least twice a month to sit down and detail our bills out. Where we are, where we're going. What are we going to pay off? We would always discuss it. How much are we going to put into savings? How much are we going to put aside for the children's college fund? We were saving for our children's college fund before we had our first child because we knew it was coming because it always scared us like college. It's thousands of dollars, you know, so how are we going to be able to prepare for that? So we launched one of those funds where it would earn interest along the way. So we worked together. It was always arm in arm. And our friends would make fun of us because when we went to the grocery store, we went together. We decided what we were going to buy. and We'd go together and do it. And that was early on in our relationship. Later, as everything matured and we started our businesses and the zeros became plentiful behind the number one, we would look and say, okay, so this is what we're going to do here. And what do you think about that? Then we would actually employ professionals to come in and help us with our financial planning and all those other things that go along with it. Life insurance. I was really sensitive to life insurance policies simply because I remember my grandfather not being able to secure a life insurance policy because he was a black man. And back then, and even today we go through it, black lives did not really matter. It did to us in our community, but in the financial world, especially the insurance world, it was very hard to uh, for a black man to get a million dollar life insurance policy. I mean, it was almost unheard of in the 50s and the 60s. I'm not saying that it didn't happen, but it was not easy. So I was really sensitive to that because that's how you start to create the next generation's wealth through real estate, life insurance acquisition policies, and the investments that you make. So my husband and I really, really self-taught until we decided that it was time to bring in a professional, but we knew we wanted to be different than what we experienced growing up as children. It sounds like you've been very successful with that, Sharon. Thank you for bringing that all to life. I'm curious where you stand today. What are your and your husband's goals going forward, especially as it relates to this generational wealth that you're talking about now? That's a great question because we're kind of toward the end game. We probably are looking at retiring in the next, I'd say, seven years or so and still keeping a hand in our businesses. But just to really get out there and start to enjoy some of the fruits of our labor is really important to us. So we're still investing heavily in the stock market, and we are looking at our real estate holdings. Of course, the life insurance is still there and in place. Long-term care policies are very important. We purchased a long-term care policy when we're in our early 40s. So we have a Cadillac plan. Back then, it was like, oh my gosh, this is a lot of money. But we've had experiences in our families on both sides where those policies weren't taken down when they should have. And then the care that we see a lot of our relatives receiving is just not the best care when they need it. That does protect your wealth when you get those policies in place. So we are looking at just having a little fun with it. We have opportunities to invest in things that we like things that we enjoy. I like the Warren Buffett model of investing, some of those blue chips early and holding on to them. We teach that to our sons as well. They're coming along. 
They're learning from some of their early mistakes, but they're coming along well. Our younger son has invested in Bitcoin about seven years ago, and he did that on his (laughs) own. And he's really doing quite well. And he can do that at his age. He can take the risk. No kids right now, and he's not married, and he enjoys it. So very early on, he deposited a substantial amount, and it's doing really well for him today. It's an important message that at an earlier age, when you can take on the risk, it's a good time to do so. It's also great when it doesn't work out, the lessons we learn through those. Sharon, you talked at the beginning about an important phenomenal mentor you had when you were really getting into business, becoming a mortgage banker. Were mentors part of your life and how did they play into you and your husband's success? Oh, absolutely. And at that time, I really didn't know that this person who was really responsible for me to be become a successful mortgage banker was a mentor. I just knew that he took an interest in me when I was 19 years old and entered the mortgage banking business with one of the largest banks in the state of Tennessee, that he just saw in me what I really didn't see in myself at the time. But he saw that there was a great potential. And later on, we talked about it. And just the life's lessons, even the part about having excellent credit resonated with me. I remember when I was 19, I took the job and we were trying to buy our first home to get an FHA mortgage. And the credit report came back and had a one over 30 on the credit report, which meant that one of my accounts was 30 days late. And it was a small balance. I think it was less than $100. And I really didn't pay much attention. He called me into his office. He sat me down and gave me the lesson on credit worthiness and what it meant. And I didn't really get that conversation with my mother and father. We didn't really discuss that at the dinner table as much. Of course, went to my paternal grandparents' house and that's all they talked about. But I didn't pay it any attention. It was a mistake, but he really coached me on that. And I thought so much of him that I was really embarrassed. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is my boss. And he's calling me out on my credit report. Well, I fixed that and (laughs) never been late on anything since. It was a lifelong lesson that we vowed to teach our sons that this is something that we're going to talk about. And not only our sons, I've had opportunities in my business career to really talk about that topic in uh, the community in which I live and serve. So. That was a life lesson. Sharon, you talked before about community and how that's so important to you. And I'm curious, are you and your husband using money to support the community or is it more time, skills, expertise, or some combination? Well, thank you for asking that question because it is very important. And for us, it's a combination. We don't hesitate to provide scholarship money opportunities for at-risk seniors who just need a hand up. And I've got really nice GPAs. There's so many diamonds in the rough out there that just need some support to get started. So we love doing scholarships and we love mentoring. So any chance I get to mentor, I'm on the advisory council for the Enterprise and Women's Organization, which is the 
Enterprise and Foundation that creates young enterprising women in STEM. And so we're just wonderfully just associated with the organization and we're able to mentor kids in at-risk school communities throughout Nashville, young girls in the program. So I love giving back in that way. I also serve on the Women Business Collaborative as a board member and also as an advisory council co-chair. And with that, we're able to reach communities across America where we are working on women's initiatives through nine action initiatives, equal pay, equity, and power. That's fantastic. But we're also able to reach communities where there are some opportunities to mentor young people. That's my passion. Really love doing that. And then weren't you involved with the Tennessee Titans as some sort of mentor? I was. It was great when the Tennessee Titans came into Nashville, as they were still called the Oilers, the Tennessee Oilers, and changed the name to the Titans. So they were my customers for 10 years. Those young guys were just critically just smart and wonderful, but they needed a little bit of molding and shaping on the financial side. So I was able to step in and and to help them with some of their real estate acquisitions and refer them out to the right professionals for counseling on money opportunities and conversations. So it was really great to work with them. I remember it like it was yesterday, but they were young men who were open to listen to some really good advice. And I think we were responsible to guide them in so many good directions. I like the idea of giving a hand up to people and we all need a hand up. I also appreciated what you said about mentorship and coaching that sometimes you don't even know you're receiving these and you look back and you realize, wow, this person has taught me so much. Speaking of lessons learned, Sharon, tell us, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? I'll save a little bit because we may have a major announcement to make in the next 90 days. I will say that right now, For Devmar Manufacturing, that's a company that I'm so, so proud to launch. We are looking at a Series A round for $70 million. (laughs) That's about all I can say right now, but I will say that that particular company is centered on our specialty products for pathogen remediation and other products that do unique things in the marketplace that makes life better for our citizens. Sounds like a really exciting round of money conversations coming up for you, Sharon. I'm so excited about it. And it's not easy. It has been a tremendous uphill climb. But as my Aunt Gloria has always told me, she would say, Sharon, never take no for an answer. Find your yes. And that has resonated with me. So the same Aunt Gloria that taught me how to make my clothes and how to become an entrepreneur when I was a senior in high school would always tell me, don't take no for an answer. If you're doing the right thing, right will follow and you'll be successful. You just have to work harder to get there. seems like you've worked very hard alongside your husband and you guys have done really well for yourselves. And we congratulate you for the success you've achieved already and what's still to come. And we thank you for being our guest on Money Tales. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I've enjoyed this conversation. Sandy, let's talk about long-term care insurance since Sharon brought this important topic up during our conversation with her. 
Cammie, there is so much to say about long-term care insurance. Given the time constraints we have today, I'm going to limit my comments to three different considerations. The first is when people are thinking about long-term care insurance, it's important to understand why they're buying it. It's not the type of insurance that everyone needs. So you consider, do you have family history that would suggest a higher probability of need? Do you have an inability to meet your stated goals, especially in the event that long-term care would be needed? Are you trying to protect your assets? Does buying the insurance bring peace of mind to you? Would having the insurance ease the burden of loved ones who would care for you? Are you someone who doesn't happen to have loved ones available to care for you if you became sick and needed care? The best time to think about this is in your mid-40s to mid-50s range. You don't really need to think about it earlier because there's so much that changes in the years over these policies. That's number one, know your why. The second consideration is whether you actually need the insurance or maybe you can self-insure. This is a, an involved calculation. Working with a financial advisor to go through it is probably a good idea. If you're thinking about buying it, you want to make sure that you actually need it. And the third consideration, if you know your why, if you've determined that you need the insurance, then you want to make sure that you pay really close attention to all the bells and whistles on these policies. They're all very different. They're expensive policies. They cover different time periods. They cover different types of care for different lengths of time. Some policies have inflation adjustments. Some don't. Pay attention to the details. And having a great insurance broker or trusted financial advisor to help you through the process is going to be a great asset in my experience. Sandy. Thank you for that. So it's first really understanding your why. That's what I heard for long-term care insurance, the why, and that really sounds very important. Then number two, can you self-fund, self-insure, or do you need to get this insurance? And three, it's complex, pay attention to the details and likely get some help. That's right. And Kimmy, on the self-insure part, what people often neglect to think about is that when there is a need for long-term care, in most cases, that need is only in place for a couple of years. Looking at some of the statistics, the average paid use of long-term care is only one year. The probability of needing care over a five-year period in a nursing home is 3% for men and 8% for women. This is based on a study that was done back in 2016. So know your facts. No one likes to think of needing long-term care and it's expensive. You don't want to train your resources if you don't need to. But as I mentioned earlier, the insurance is expensive. And so you'll be thinking about those three things before you jump in and buy it. That's so important. Thank you, Sandy, for sharing that important financial insight around long-term care. Money Tales listeners, thank you for listening. We look forward to hearing from you. You can email us at podcasts at Share your money stories with us. Also, if you have a certain guest you'd like to recommend to join us on Money Tales, we'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales.